The following sermon was preached in the Sunday gathering of First Baptist Church of Wisconsin Rapids, Wisconsin. We pray it bears fruit in your life, and we hope that you share it with others who might also benefit. At the same time, if you're not already, we encourage you to join a faithful local church where you can sit under the preaching of God's word and observe the ordinances. Visit firstbaptistwr.com for more information. Well, we pray now that you would be gracious to us and bless us. That you would show us your glory this morning. That you would make yourself known. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. God is a holy God, and an unholy and sinful people cannot dwell with him. When Adam and Eve sinned in Genesis in the garden, God cast them out of Eden, that garden temple. And a cherubim and a flaming sword guarded the way to the tree of life. They guarded the way back into God's presence there. But before God exiled them from the garden, he promised mankind a son born of a woman who would crush the head of that serpent who had tempted and deceived Eve and brought evil into the world. And we saw that the rest of Genesis trace those events surrounding this line of that promised offspring, right down to the people of Israel, whom God calls his son. And in Exodus, God brings his son out of Egypt in triumph. He does so by crushing the head of Pharaoh, who's acting as a serpent in this book. We talked about how he had a cobra right on his headpiece. Psalm 74 says he was a serpent in the midst of those waters. But God crushes Egypt and all their forces in the Red Sea. God delivers Israel through the water, and he judges Egypt in that same water. He overthrows them in the Red Sea. So God keeps his promises of redemption to Israel, and from there on, he begins to make a provision to restore and even to perfect that fellowship and that communion that Adam and Eve enjoyed in Eden before their sin. God is going to make a way for his presence to dwell with his people. So God gives instructions to, to construct the tabernacle of meeting, this tent out in the wilderness. He gives very specific instructions for how to construct it, and the people do so. And once they have finished it, God descends in the cloud and fire and smoke to dwell there. Before this time, God had appeared sporadically by visions sometimes, or as the angel of the Lord, he appeared in the burning bush. But now he begins to enact his purpose to dwell with his people permanently, forever, to be with them always. He takes up residence in the tabernacle, this tent. But in order for God to dwell among the people, he gives, he gives them very specific laws which they must obey. Many laws in this book of Leviticus. The book of Leviticus is clear. God is a holy God, and his people must also be holy. Now the narrative of the book of Leviticus picks up right where Exodus left off. The glory of the Lord had filled this tabernacle there. And in the first words of Leviticus, the Lord calls to Moses and he speaks to Moses from between the cherubim on the Ark of the Covenant 
in the most holy place, the holy of holies. The first recorded words of the Lord after taking residence in the tabernacle have to do with making a sacrifice, and that is no accident. The first thing the holy God addresses when he comes to tabernacle among them is to address the unholiness of the people. He addresses their sin. He talks about making a sacrifice. The people he is dwelling among are sinners. Scripture says that sin is lawlessness, and Israel has shown very emphatically that they are sinners. God descended on Mount Sinai in fire. He gave Moses a law. And before Moses could even get down the mountain, they had already broken the law. They had made an idol. They made a calf and bowed down to it and worshipped it. Before Moses could even come down the mountain, they had already broken it. And Moses smashes those tablets of stone. That covenant of works, that law was broken. Israel is a nation of sinners. And yet... God promises after that event. God promises Moses in Exodus 33:14, "My presence will go with you, and I will give you rest." And Moses makes new tablets like the first, and they deposit them in the ark of the covenant, and they put it behind the veil in the holy of holies in the tabernacle. Now the question is, if God has commanded Israel this law to keep, and they have broken it, then how can this sinful and unholy people draw near to this holy God? The book of Leviticus teaches that the way to communion, the way back to communion and fellowship with God, is through atonement and cleansing. It's through blood and water and fire. Israel's sin has made a separation between them and the Lord. And the tabernacle is an illustration of this. Now, in order to understand that, you have to understand how the tabernacle was constructed. The tabernacle was twice as long as it was wide. I think it was 150 feet long, 75 feet wide. There were two squares next to each other, one here, one here. There was an outer court where the common people were all allowed to come to present their sacrifices. In the middle of that was the altar for burnt offering. Past that was a basin for washing. All the common people were allowed to enter into that court. But beyond that was the tent, that tabernacle. There was a curtain in front of it. And only the priests were allowed to pass through that curtain not the rest of the people, only the priests. Beyond that was the most holy place separated by another curtain. And that most holy place where the Ark of the Covenant sat, only the high priest was allowed to enter past that veil there, and only once a year, and not without blood. So there is a separation between the people and God. And they can't approach God just in any old way. God dwells in the Holy of Holies behind the veil. None but the high priest was permitted to enter, and not without blood. 
The people could only approach God by that priest who mediated between the people and the holy God. Holiness means to be set apart, to be separate, to be different and distinct. God is holy. God is making a provision to dwell among the people, but his glory, his presence is shrouded. It's veiled. There is a separation there. They don't see God's presence unmediated. The people don't see the Lord face to face. And God speaks to even Moses behind that veil, and not directly. There's a curtain set up there. God is holy, and the people are not holy in themselves. So in order for them to enter into God's presence, certain statutes, certain rules must be fulfilled. They are extensive, and that's why most people don't want to read Leviticus. There's so many laws, it's hard to figure out what they all mean, what they're all there for. In order for this separation to be overcome, these laws must be fulfilled. There is a very specific way. There's only one right way to come back into God's presence. There's a very narrow way. It's opened up by blood and water. And while there's one very specific right way to come into God's presence, to re-enter the presence of God, there are a million wrong ways. The way of destruction is very broad, and the way to life is narrow. Israel has seen God's power and might. God graciously brought them out of Egypt. He says in Exodus 19.4, You have seen what I did to the Egyptians, and how I bore you on eagles' wings, and brought you to myself. They've seen him descend in fire on Mount Sinai. They've seen the sons of Levi take the sword to 3,000 of their own tribesmen for their disobedience. They saw the Egyptians fall for disobeying the Lord. So they should be convinced at this point that God is true to his word. He doesn't make just bare threats. They should be convinced it's in their best interest to obey God, and it should cause them to tremble and fear that God is in their midst. But God begins to give them instructions in chapter 1 of Leviticus. He gives instructions for the burnt offering, the grain offering, the peace offering, the sin offering, the trespass offering. The law for each offering is very specific, but one repeated instruction that you should all take note of is that the person offering the sacrifice was to lay their hand on the forehead of the animal that they were sacrificing. Leviticus 1.4 says, Then he shall put his hand on the head of the burnt offering, and it will be accepted on his behalf to make atonement for him. So the Israelites are to bring a sacrifice, lay their hand on the head of that sacrifice, and then they are to slay the animal. And then the blood of the animal is sprinkled all over the altar at the door of the tabernacle. In this case, the common person is to bring a bull from the herd, a male bull. A bull is a male. Without blemish. Lay his hand on his head, slaughter it. It is to make atonement for him. It is to be a male without blemish. The text is very clear. 
So to sum up, Israel has sinned. Sin makes a separation between them and God. But God has promised to dwell with his people. And God takes up residence in this tabernacle. The sinner brings an unblemished animal, a male from the herd, brings it before the tabernacle and slaughters it. It's from his own herd, meaning it's to cost him something. He slays the animal, the priests sprinkle the blood on this altar, and they burn up the bull. Now you can notice a few common elements there from Adam and Eve's exile from the Garden of Eden. There was a flaming sword, and here there is an altar of burnt offering, there is a knife at least, and there's blood to make atonement. There's some parallels there between their exile from Eden and the sacrifice here. Now to make atonement is to make payment for sin. And that's what the blood of these bulls was to do. Now you might say, hold on a minute. What did that bull do wrong? Was it their pita back in that day? What about the animal? Why are they taking this out on the bull? It's not fair. He didn't do anything wrong. Why are they taking it out on this bull? Why are they taking a male from the herd without blemish, slaughtering it, sprinkling its blood on the altar, and burning it up when it's man that has sinned? How is that fair? How is that right? Now, the animal sacrifice in each of these sacrifices is a substitute for the sinner. The sinner lays his hand on the head of the animal. The bull, in this case, the heads of other animals, it indicates the transfer or the imputation of one's sin to that animal. So the bull is a substitutionary sacrifice. The bull is slaughtered in the place of the person. And there's not only one imputation here, that laying the hand on the head. There's a double imputation. The sinner's sin is reckoned to the bull's account. Also, the bull's unblemished nature is reckoned as belonging to the sinner. So there's a great exchange here. The person's sin is transferred to the animal to be sacrificed. The animal's unblemished nature, the animal's innocence, is transferred or reckoned as belonging to the person offering the sacrifice. There is a great exchange. And if you struggle with that idea of imputation, which I've talked about before, which the Reformers talked about, that we're accounted righteous in Christ, not because we're actually righteous, but because we're reckoned righteous for the sake of Christ. If you struggle with that idea and that great exchange, think about this image from the Old Testament. It is not that the bull had actually sinned. It's not that the person was actually righteous. They were declared righteous. They were pardoned for the sake of this sacrificial offering. Every offering was to be unblemished. The burnt offering was to be without blemish. The grain offering was to be of fine flour, not just any flour. The peace offering was to be a male or female without blemish. The sin offering, a young bull without blemish. There's a reason for all of those statutes. 
And Leviticus gives a multitude of laws. Every sin is to be atoned for, intentional sin, unintentional sin, big sin, small sin, every sin in between. It's all to be atoned for with blood. And the amount of blood that would have flowed in the courts of this tabernacle had to be staggering. This summer we raised some Cornish rock chickens in the backyard. It was a nice experiment that we had. The kids enjoyed it. They got to play with the chickens. Sometimes they played well with them. <laughs> well, we raised them. We tried to keep the critters off of them and keep them alive. Fed them, watered them, make sure they were cared for. But one day it came the time to butcher the chickens. <laughs> so we rented a plucker. Uh, one of those things, like a washing machine that spins around, plucks their feathers off, which was really nice. And the guy we rented this from also gave us a killing comb, which was really nice. It was made out of a five-gallon bucket. You were to tack this killing cone up to a post, which we did. We tacked it up in the yard. Uh, you boil the chicken, broil it in water quick so the feathers come off. Well, first of all, this is what you have to do. You put the chicken in the killing cone, and you cut its head off. The point is, a lot of blood flows out of those chickens when you take their heads off. There's a lot of blood. We had 14 birds, and with each one, there was more and more blood. I had blood spattered on my face, on my clothes, on my arms, a pool of blood on the ground. Now you can imagine with all the sacrifices going through the front of that tabernacle, there would have to be a lot of blood there. Bulls and goats and rams have a lot more blood than a few chickens. It would have been blood everywhere. It wouldn't have been pretty. And in Leviticus 17, the Lord completely forbids Israel the eating of blood. For he says, the life of the flesh is in the blood, and I have given it to you upon the altar to make atonement for your souls. For it is the blood that makes atonement for the soul. So for this reason, blood was sacred in Israel. That's the reason for that statute there. Blood was sacred because blood was to make atonement for their souls. Now, there are laws for how the people are to present the offering. There are laws for how the priests are to carry out the offering. Careful and detailed instructions. They're to wear certain clothes. The priests are to be consecrated and set apart. They're washed in water. They put on special garments. There's special oil poured on them. Animals are sacrificed for them before they can come before God. They have blood spread on the tip of their ear, the tip of their finger, the tip of their big toe show that they're covered in blood? The point is, not just anyone can approach God to serve as a mediator between God and men. We cannot come before God any old way we please. God makes a way, but it is a very narrow, very specific way. There is a way. There is one way. It is a narrow way. And Moses instructs Aaron and his sons in Leviticus 8.35, Keep the charge of the Lord so that you may not die. 
But what happens? Shortly after Aaron's sons are consecrated and set apart as priests, they hear this warning. What do they do? God says, obey my instructions so that you may not die. What happens in chapter 10? Nadab and Abihu don't obey God's instructions. They disobey the Lord. They offer unauthorized fire before the Lord. God did not command them to offer it, and they do it anyway. And fire comes out from the Lord and consumes them. And they die before the Lord. And Leviticus 10.3 says, Moses said to Aaron, This is what the Lord spoke, saying, By those who come near me I must be regarded as holy, and before all the people I must be glorified. So what is God saying there? The Lord seems to be saying that the reason Nadab and Abihu were devoured in fire is that they did not regard the Lord as holy, and they did not glorify him before the people. They treated the Lord as something common and profane. And they robbed him of glory in their actions. Now there may be another clue as to why the Lord so severely struck them here. In verses 8 to 11, the Lord commands Aaron, right after this incident, he says, do not drink wine or intoxicating drink. You nor your sons with you when you go into the tabernacle of meeting, lest you die. So, were Nadab and Abihu drunk? Were they intoxicated when they offered that profane fire? They might as well have been, for how recklessly they acted, sinning right after God had given them such careful instruction. But I want to say a word on alcohol here. The priests were commanded not to bring alcohol into that part of the tent into the holy place. But that does not mean that alcohol was completely forbidden to the people of Israel. Jesus does turn the water into wine at the wedding at Cana. And in the early church, when observing the Lord's Supper, Paul had to correct the people because some of them were getting drunk at the Lord's Supper, believe it or not. That was happening in the early church. Getting drunk at the Lord's Supper. Now you can't get drunk on grape juice. So apparently they were serving wine. Another point, the psalmist in Psalm 104.15 praises God for giving man wine that gladdens the heart of man. Thanking God for this provision of wine, alcoholic drink. So it's hard to make a case from Scripture that God forbids drinking completely. But Scripture does forbid drunkenness. Now, some choose not to drink at all for one reason or another, and that's between them and God, and we should respect that and honor that. But God does not forbid the drinking of alcohol, period, in Scripture. They didn't call Jesus a wine bib and a glutton because he was just drinking grape juice. He was drinking wine. Now that said, we all must be wise and judicious if and when we do partake of this drink. We do not serve our own stomachs, but our Lord Jesus Christ. Our body is for him and not for drunkenness. But after this incident with Aaron's sons, Leviticus goes into dietary laws, describing clean and unclean animals. 
laws of purification from childbirth, laws concerning leprosy, and laws about purification from bodily discharges. Law is given for the Day of Atonement, that one day in the year when the high priest enters that most holy place, he goes behind the veil with blood. And again, to emphasize, the Lord says in Leviticus 16.16, blood is to make atonement for the holy place because of the uncleanness of the children of Israel and because of their transgressions for all their sins. The blood is given for sins. Aaron is also to offer two goats, one for a sin offering and one as a scapegoat to bear Israel's sins out into the wilderness. Remove their sins from them. The Lord gives laws for sexual immorality, ceremonial laws, moral laws, civil laws, this precept upon precept upon precept, law upon law upon law. Every jot and tittle is to be kept perfectly. Moral, immoral, clean, unclean, holy days, common days, feasts, festivals, laws for slavery, laws for redemption, laws for harvesting, laws that say you can't mix one fabric with another. What's all this about? Why all these laws? What's the point of all these rules? And why those harsh judgments at certain points that I talked about? If you have a Bible with you, open, you can turn with me to Leviticus chapter 20, verse 22. Leviticus chapter 20, verse 22. There the Lord says, You shall therefore keep all my statutes and all my judgments and perform them, that the land where I am bringing you to dwell may not vomit you out. And you shall not walk in the statutes of the nation which I am casting out before you, for they commit all these things, and therefore I abhor them. But I have said to you, you shall inherit their land, and I will give it to you to possess, a land flowing with milk and honey. I am the Lord your God who has separated you from the peoples. You shall therefore distinguish between clean animals and unclean, between unclean birds and clean. And you shall not make yourselves abominable by beast or by bird or by any kind of living thing that creeps on the ground, which I have separated from you as unclean. And you shall be holy to me, for I, the Lord, am holy and have separated you from the peoples, that you should be mine." The reason for every little statute and rule, every jot and tittle, we might never know. We might not know why this specific law was given. It might take a lot of learning to figure out exactly. But God is clear the overarching purpose of all of these laws in great number is to make a distinction between Israel and the peoples around them. They are to be distinct. They are to be set apart. They are to be holy as God is holy. God has separated them from the peoples. He's made them a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a people for his own possessions, a holy nation. And they are to be separate. They are to be preserved as this special and holy people, through whom the Messiah will come. Remember that God is making sure 
that this blessing continues, that it goes from son to son to son down this line through Israel. And Israel must be preserved as a particular people through whom the Messiah will come. And these laws make a distinction between them and from every other nation on the face of the earth. As the Lord says in Leviticus 19.2, Be holy, for I, the Lord your God, am holy. He says almost exactly the same words in two other places. Be holy, for I, the Lord your God, am holy. God has separated them. He's drawn them out of Egypt, and therefore they must be separate. They must follow these laws in order to be distinct from the other nations. And yet what happened to Nadab and Abihu, who were part of the nation of Israel, this special people? They were Aaron's sons, the priests. The law didn't spare them from God's wrath. The law couldn't make them obedient. They disobeyed God. He spared them from Egypt, but they're consumed in fire shortly after. Later in Leviticus 24, after a bunch more statutes and laws and rules, a man of Israel gets in a fight with another man of Israel, and he curses and blasphemes the name of God in the camp, right in the shadow of this tent of meeting. And the people lay their hands on him, and they stone him to death with stones there. The Lord is clear. He gives them these commands because they are to be different. They're not to do as the Egyptians did. They're not to do as the Canaanites do in their land. The Lord says, You shall therefore keep my statutes and my judgments, which if a man does, he shall live by them. I am the Lord. Pay attention to what the Lord says there. He says, If you keep them, then you shall live. If you keep them, then you shall live. The question we should ask is, should Israel have expected to attain life by keeping the law, by keeping every jot and tittle perfectly? Should they have expected life to come through that? If you turn to chapter 26, it gives us a hint. The Lord gives Israel a list of blessings that would come if they obey, great blessings. There is also a list of curses if they should disobey and break the law God has given them. The blessings are very great, but the curses are very specific and they're very gruesome, very graphic. The Lord says, If they do not obey his law, he will cast them out of the land he promised. He will punish them seven times over. He himself will turn against them. And even, he says, they will eat the flesh of their sons and their daughters. The list of curses is much longer than the list of blessings. It's clear that the emphasis in the text is not on the blessings. It's not on the blessings, it is on the curses. And this suggests that the blessing for obedience is not what Israel should be expecting. 
And if you know Israel's history throughout the Old Testament, you know that the Lord does indeed exile them from the land for their disobedience. All of these curses come upon the people of Israel, every last one of them, for their disobedience. But in verse 40, the Lord also says, after this list of curses, as ghastly as they are, in verse 40, the Lord says, speaking of Israel, but if they confess their iniquity, if they confess their iniquity and the iniquity of their fathers with their unfaithfulness in which they were unfaithful to me, if their uncircumcised hearts are humbled and they accept their guilt, then I will remember my covenant with Jacob and my covenant with Isaac and my covenant with Abraham. I will remember. I will remember the land. Speaking of the promised land. In other words, even though this is true, that they will break God's law, that these curses will come upon them if they break it. They fail to keep the covenant. Even if Israel should do that, then the Lord exiles them from the land. They're sent out of this promised land of Canaan. Yet God will keep his promise in the end. He will keep his covenant with Abraham and with Isaac and with Jacob. The people of Israel should have understood that their own righteousness would not secure God's promise. There was not a law that could give life. As I said before, they broke the law at Sinai before Moses could even get down the mountain. He had to shatter it the moment he got down. He should have known that they couldn't keep the law. Moses broke those tablets in two. The law was broken. The covenant was broken, the covenant of works. They could not get life that way. They could not attain to it. And so Israel was not to see in a burnt offering a law to be kept for life in order to attain to eternal life. They were to see the promise of a true and better sacrifice to come. They were to see an unblemished male whose blood would be poured out for sin. Whose body would endure the burning of God's wrath against sin. And Israel was not to see in that ritual washing and cleansing, some kind of cleansing that could make them clean forever. They should have seen they had to be washed again and again and again. There was no once for all washing. Those washings pointed ahead to a baptism in Christ's blood and his righteousness, to blood and water poured out on the cross, to cleanse them from sin. That washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit through Christ. They weren't to see in Aaron and his sons a perfect priesthood that could atone for all their sins and be a perfect mediator between them and God. They were to see that true and better high priest to come. 
that priest who had not come from the line of Aaron and his sons, but from the line of Melchizedek. They were not to see in the tabernacle that promise fulfilled of God's dwelling with them forever. It was just a tent. Tents are temporary dwelling places by by their very nature. That's what they are. But they were to see that eternal word, who the Apostle John says in the first chapter of his gospel, that word would come in tabernacle among them. Christ would come. God would be incarnate. He would take on flesh. As John said, he would tabernacle among them. Christ came and dwelt among us, and he revealed the glory of God in a far greater way than that tabernacle did. The promised Son would come. These are all pointing forward to that promise to be fulfilled in Christ. So the nation of Israel could not fulfill these laws. They could not do all of these statutes. They had already broken God's law, but Christ did fulfill all of them. Hebrews 10.4 says it is not possible that the blood of bulls and goats could take away sins. Hebrews 9.12 says Christ did not enter the most holy place by the blood of goats and calves, but he entered once for all by his own blood, thus securing eternal redemption. The universal testimony of the Old Testament and the church is that Christ is the end of the law, for righteousness to all who believe. Just as those people of Israel was to, were to lay their hands on an animal and their sin would be imputed to that animal, so by faith we lay our hands on Christ, a spotless lamb, that lamb without blemish or spot. And there's that great exchange where our sin is exchanged to Christ, that spotless lamb, and Christ's innocence is charged to our account. Christ gets our sin. He is that animal that is sacrificed, that spotless lamb. And we're made righteous in him, innocent in him. So though we all, like those men of Israel, we're unholy, we're sinners, we've sinned in thought, word, and deed, and God is holy, yet God has made a way for him to dwell with us, for us to dwell with him, to draw near to him by the blood of Christ. He made a way to keep his promise in spite of our sin. Well, there's only one way back to fellowship with God, and that way is through the blood of Christ. Nothing but the blood of Christ can wash away our sin, and it's only by faith in him, faith in all that he is, that we enter into life and that fellowship with God is restored. If you're here this morning and you hear this message, repent, believe in the promise of eternal life through Christ, and you will be saved. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the blood of Christ. We thank you that Even while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. That you made a way for us to have fellowship with you, to have eternal life, though we did not deserve it. To give us grace to walk 
in the way which you have given us because of all that you've done for us. Pray in Jesus' name, amen. Thank <laughs> you.